Good morning, Austin Oaks. My name is Chad McCartney. I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Austin Oaks Church. And if you were here last Sunday, uh, you probably know that I was supposed to be preaching uh, last Sunday as well. But um, there's a little hiccup. So my back completely locked up on me Friday night. And fortunately, in God's grace, JJ and I had been working on uh, some of the aspects of the service already together because of the content of it being around worship. And so I wanted to include him on some of the things. Well, he got included in on a little bit more than what he was thinking because I woke up Saturday and realized I, I probably was not going to be moving. I was in the fetal position for about three straight days. Uh, the only movement I could make is I could crawl on all fours to the restroom, which I'm sure you don't want to know that. But uh, until I could get into the, the doctor, and, and this is honestly, this is the most fin- physically strenuous message I've ever prepared for. I've been in the physical therapist multiple times this week just to be able to sit up and eventually walk. So I've done more training for this message physically than I ever have in my life, only to find out that my topic this morning is wives submitting to their husbands, children obeying their parents, and slaves obeying their masters. So suddenly my back is getting really tight again, thinking, man, is that what I'm welcome back to today? So... Anyways, I want to give a shout out. I did get to watch the message and just thought JJ did an outstanding job last Sunday if you were here. Did he come out and and, uh, do an encore? He was hoping he didn't have to do it. When he saw what was going on this week, he said, Chad, you better get better this Sunday because I'm not doing this one. So uh, it was awesome. I think it was obviously the right person to be up here. He has a lot of history and experience in that and, and watching it. I was very encouraged and moved by the things that he shared and believed he was the right person to deliver that message. So it certainly worked out for the, the best. But today we're going to look at a passage that will take the concept of worship that we saw last week and work it out in an everyday uh, practical realm in our lives to take it into three of the most Uh, arguably most important relationships that we have in our lives. One is marriage, the other is family, and the third one is our workplace. So if you have your Bibles with you today, open them up to Colossians chapter 3. Get yourself positioned. We're going to pray here, and then we're going to jump into the last part of Colossians chapter 3 and take the concepts from last week in worship and work them into these very practical, everyday relationships that we have. So let's pray, and we'll jump in. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning, and thankful that we have uh, something as wonderful as the church to gather together as your children, uh, to encourage one another, to hear from your word, to sing these songs of truth that encourage our hearts and remind us of who you are, and who we are and ought to be in response to that, Lord. And uh, we can so often take for granted the blessing that this is. And so, Lord, would you take this time this morning and work in our hearts? Would your spirit move in our minds and our hearts to uh, hear and understand the truths that you have for us? Lord, I know these are not truths that are popular in our world, but they're necessary for who we are called to be as Christians and followers of Jesus Christ. So help us understand why when we dig into them, we'll see that they really are good. And they really are what's uh, best for us in our families and in our homes and in our workplaces, and ultimately to honor and worship you uh, in a world that often doesn't. So Lord, speak to us uh, as only you can, and Lord, strengthen me to deliver this message in a way that honors you and encourages your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What you worship will always affect how you relate to others. And likewise, how you relate to others will always reflect what you worship. 
And maybe no passage better in the Bible demonstrates that than the passage we're going to look at today in the context of where we've been. In this passage, we've transitioned. If you're new with us today, we've been going through the book of Colossians that's taken us on a journey to first start by telling us about the, the uh, centrality of Jesus Christ in the Christian faith, his supremacy and, and superiority in all things and why he should be at the very center and heart and soul of everything that we do. And Paul, with that, addressed to this church that was uh, facing some challenges, uh, some of these issues that they were facing and showing them why when you keep Christ central in your life, it corrects you from common errors that we often can fall into. Then as we've transitioned into these latter chapters, we've gotten into some real practical life application things. And Pastor Brandon talked about the old person, some of the habits we put off in our old life as we become Christians and how we go about doing that and putting them to death. Pastor Lucas encouraged us on the, the new kinds of character that comes up in our lives as the followers of Jesus Christ and how we grow in that. And then last week, in the middle of chapter 3, we saw a passage that really told us the power to those changes. How do you change? How do you put off the old person? And how do you put on the new person? It's not just rules and regulations. It's the gospel. It's the dwelling of the gospel message in our hearts, in our midst, and it's singing and admonishing. It's reminding each other of who we are in Him. That's the heart of worship. That's what worship accomplishes, is it brings about those changes. And now today, we're going to see how that trickles out from these four walls in this church to the most important relationships that we often have in our life. You see, so often we can come here and be one person within these four walls, and then the many, many hours that we spend outside this, we're completely different. But worship is never intended to be something that only happens within the walls of this building. See, when you become a Christian, God tells us and Paul tells us that everything in your life becomes sacred. There's no secular and sacred aspects of your life. Because you carry the very person of God and the Holy Spirit into every activity that you do. And so everything becomes an act of worship. And we're going to see that here, but we're going to see it primarily in three key relationships that Paul's going to talk to us about. So if you have your Bible open, uh, it'll also be up on the screen. You can follow along with us. We're going to start in Colossians 3. And I want to read verses 16 and 17 from last week because they're a major setup to what we're seeing here. And too many times we disconnect what we're going to see in the, the remaining verses from what's right here in this main passage. So verse 16 says this, let the word of Christ dwell richly among you. That term word of Christ is the message of Christ or the logos of Christ. It's the gospel. It's the message of what Christ did for you and for me. So it's saying, let the gospel of Christ, let this gospel message uh, dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So Paul's describing in that verse the very core characteristics of Christian worship from day one. These have always been things that have been part and parcel of the gathering of Christians together. Letting the message of the gospel, this good news, and specifically what Jesus did in his life death and resurrection for us, and in general, all the truths that he gives us. But that's dwelling in our hearts, and we're speaking and teaching and admonishing one another with that. But we're also singing to one another, and, and these truths remind us of them as well. And sometimes they engage us in ways that just hearing of the word doesn't. So he's saying it's worship. These are the things that cause us to put off the old man and put on the new man. And then he goes into this verse 17 where he says, and whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So, so this is my first point for you, really summarizing that so you see how it leads into the remainder of this chapter, is gospel-centered worship should affect every area of your life. Gospel-centered worship should affect every area of your life. What I mean by that is that we often miss the gospel. The gospel is God's perfect son, his righteous son, his sinless son, instead took the punishment that you and I deserved so that we could receive the reward that he earned. 
It's the most unjust and unfair act in the history of the universe. Absolute perfection gets treated as if he was the worst criminal this world has ever known, so that the worst criminals in this world could be treated as if they're the very Son of God, perfectly righteous. That's the gospel. And church, when you let that truth dwell in your heart, it can't help but affect how you live in every single area of your life. So I'm going to share with you some truths here that Paul's sharing here that, that the world is going to say, that's like old-fashioned, or that, you can't, that's not fair, that shouldn't be that way, that doesn't seem equal, or it doesn't seem fair, all these kinds of things. You know what? Of all the people who should be willing to accept truths that don't seem fair in the world's eyes, Christians should be the first ones. Because none of us would be here as followers of Jesus Christ if the most unfair act in the history of the world wasn't willingly accepted by the person of Jesus Christ. We could really end the message right there. That's the heart of this. And as soon as the gospel leaves us and we start going with rules and regulations and we start piling on self-righteousness and, and deserving this and I deserve this and look at me, I'm, I'm comparing myself to other people instead of comparing yourself to what Jesus did for you, it totally ruins the heart of our faith. But what we're going to see next is, is how that worship now, Paul says, everything you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he's going to jump into the most common areas that you spend the majority of your life right after this. Saying, what you do in these three areas is the greatest reflection of who or what you truly worship. He's going to talk about marriage. He's going to talk about our families. And he's going to talk about our workplaces, probably the three relationships that most dominate our, our lives. And so verse 18 starts like this. He says, Wives, submit to your, yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Slaves, Obey your human masters and everything. I'm, I'm going to pause here for a minute because whenever you get to some of these slaves and master passages in the Bible, a lot of people tune out or struggle right away because we misread uh, our own experience back into the Bible. So let me give me a, a little historical context as well as how we modern Westerners often read into it. The problem we have with reading these passages is we go back to our most recent historical view of slavery, of what took place in our nation, and that's our view of slavery. And so we read it into the Bible, and we think, this is horrific. Why could Paul, why doesn't the Bible say more about slavery? But that's not the kind of slavery that you see in the Bible. What happened here in our country is an absolute horrific event. That kind of slavery, it was racial, it was taking some set of humans and saying they're less human than us and so therefore we can take them and use them to benefit ourselves. It is the most horrific type of slavery you could possibly imagine. But that's not what the biblical slavery typically was. There was two types of slaves that typically existed in the Bible. One of them was one who uh, sold themselves into slavery. Okay, now think of this. Think of going back 2,000 years. You don't have society developed in the same way we do now. You don't have welfare programs. You don't have, you know, unemployment type things. You don't have a lot of structures that are set up nowadays that help people that may get into debt or may lose their jobs and various things. And so back then, if you had some kind of catastrophe and you lost a lot or you mismanaged it and you got into a lot of debt, you really didn't have the same options that you have now to get out of it. And so the one option that they often would have is they would sell themselves into slavery to someone who had more wealth, and they'd say, hey, I will work for you for this indefinite period of time, whatever they agreed upon, and you put me up, you feed me, and they would often get a very meager wage you know, to go along with that. And that was one form of slavery. That was one of the most common ones. The other type of slavery that often existed was a wartime type of slavery. Okay, and we don't understand this either because as Americans, we're not used to or we haven't experienced a war that's actually happened on our ground 
technically, other than maybe Pearl Harbor, but that didn't affect a lot of us here where it wasn't here in the mainland. Back then, every war took place in the actual countries that they were, you know, fighting. And so when they fought, they would man-to-man combat, they would be in there, and after they defeated someone, they would often go and just destroy their little country, or they destroy their city. They would burn and pillage the whole thing. And so there was nothing left of those cities oftentimes after a war. And the survivors that were left would often be taken as prisoners by the winning country. That makes sense. Now that seems cruel, but imagine this. Imagine that happening here in Austin, and this whole city just got burned to the ground, everything is destroyed, and then maybe 10% of us are left alive. How easy would it be for you to survive with everything destroyed here? What would you do? Where would you work? How would you make a living? So I'm not saying this is a good thing. It's a result of just evil and brokenness in the world. But those people would often be taken back to that country and they would live as slaves in that person's house, but they would have a place to live and they would be cared for or taken care of. Not always in the best way, but it wasn't a, a racial thing. It was because of the, the ugliness of war and it just happens. But it in some ways was merciful because they were being taken care of as opposed to being left in a place that was completely wiped out. And what's interesting is Paul's going to speak into these relationships in a redemptive way to say, hey, you don't treat these people in your household in a way that the world would often do it. He's going to show them how you can live in these ways and you can be, as a master in these situations, treat them like an equal as opposed to how a lot of people in that time would have treated them. So reading this again, keep that context in mind here as we go into it. So slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people. Knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord, you serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. So I believe the best way to take passages like this in our modern context is they're closer to our, our work relationships. Okay, so how you would respond to a boss is how Paul is calling these, these servants or these slaves to respond to a master. And if he's speaking to masters, he's talking to someone who's put in authority over a workplace and how you are to treat those people who are working for you. Paul is calling them to work in more of that type of an environment and treat each other in that kind of environment as opposed to maybe how the world would have treated them at that time. So here, let's take a look at this. My worship is reflected in my closest relationships. That's your second point. My worship is reflected in my closest relationships. And Paul's going to touch on these three today. My marriage, my family, and my workplace. So let's start off into my marriage. Verses 18 and 19 talk about marriage. They talk about husbands and wives. It says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, that's not a real popular statement nowadays at all. But the problem with it is, is the world tries to look in here and evaluate what's being said here with the values of the world. Because the world, in one hand, will say, hey, submission means you're of lesser value. That's what the world will try to say. Even though they don't really believe that, they, they, they contradict themselves. They think if you're in a position of submission where you have to obey someone else, you're of lesser value. But I don't even know people in the world or non-Christians who would look in any secular organization and say that a secretary is less valuable as a person than the CEO. There, there are some people that might believe that, but I don't think most non-believers believe that. And yet when you're asked to submit, they suddenly want to read into the scriptures and saying, well, that's saying that that person's less valuable. Well, absolutely not. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that submission is a statement of value. Not once. You can't find that anywhere. In fact, the very Trinity itself, God the Father, Son, and Spirit, has a functional submission within the Godhead. The Son submits to the Father and came to earth to do the things that he commanded the Son to do. 
Jesus, at one point when he was getting ready to leave, told the disciples, he said, I'm going to leave, but when I go, I'm going to send the Spirit to come and be with you. Meaning Jesus will tell the Spirit, you go to be with the believers now during this time, and the Spirit will obey what Jesus asked the Spirit to do. There is a submission within the Trinity that brings order to how they work together, but nowhere does it say in the Bible that one is more valuable than the other. It's always shown that the Father, Son, and Spirit are equal in deity and value. It's the world that tries to misinterpret this. Never is it any different. 1 Corinthians 11.3 says it like this, but I want you to know that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ. So if you want to say, take that passage and say, well, that's saying that men are more important than women, then you have to say that God the Father is more important than Jesus Christ. You have to defy what the scriptures say about the Godhead itself. These aren't statements of value. They're just statements of how things are ordered within a home or other places that, that we're going to talk about here in order to properly bring honor and glory to God, who is a God of order. That's it. Submission in no way d- diminishes value. In fact, if you know uh, anything about this concept of worship, which is what we're talking about here, worship requires submission. The key words in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that are translated as worship refer to a prostrating in a physical sense. It would be like someone prostrating themselves and sticking out their neck before someone else in a totally vulnerable position saying, I am at your mercy. I will do as you will. They mean to serve one another. That's what worship means. So there is nothing closer to the act of worship than the act of submission. You want to be a great worshiper? You never will be until you learn to submit. So maybe we got it switched around then in this world. And maybe places of submission are the best opportunities that we have to become followers of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's the world that says, if I could just get rid of all authority and anyone telling me what to do in my life, then my life would be great. Maybe that's just a lie of the devil who would love for us to, as we heard last week, worship him rather than worship God. I'm just throwing that out there as a possibility. Therefore, uh, submission really is a training ground for worship. The better you learn to submit, the better worshiper you're going to be. And in no way in the Bible does it say positions that require submission are less influential or less valuable than those that are in positions of authority. Everyone has to submit to someone. I heard this great story. I don't know if it's true, but it's a great story. I think it, it, it has to be true, right? It's such a good story. But George, President George Bush and Barbara Bush were uh, back in Barbara's hometown. This is after his presidency. And, and they were driving in. They pulled into a gas station to get gas. And as they were sitting in the car waiting, uh, an attendant came out to pump their gas. And the attendant was uh, one of Barbara's old high school boyfriends. And, and George just you know, got a big kick out of that, kind of gives her a little elbow and says, hey, Barbara, I says, just look what, if you would have married that guy, you would have been married to a gas station attendant. And he's just chuckling. And without hesitation, Barbara looks at George and he said, if I would have married that guy, he would have been the president of the United States. <laughs> Barbara understood that your position in a relationship has no distinction in terms of how valuable you are in that role. Don't you dare let someone tell you that your position determines your value. The Bible never says that. It goes on to talk about husbands now. Husbands, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. I had to chuckle here because sometimes the Bible speaks through its silence and never says anything about a wife's attitude. It just says, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. It says, husbands, don't uh, love your wives and don't be bitter towards them. So apparently, wives, you can be bitter all you want. You just have to submit to your husband. <laughs> just saying, okay? But guys, we've got to work on our attitudes, all right? 
Husbands, this love that it talks about here is a sacrificial love. It's a, a love that will wield your leadership for the good of others, not for your own good. It puts others' needs before your own. That's what biblical leadership looks like. It's not something that says, oh, finally I've gotten this position, now everyone's here to serve me. No, it's saying, hey, I have this responsibility, I have this leadership, I'm entrusted with this. How can I leverage it for the good of those who are under my authority? You become, in essence, the greatest servant of all because you have the most responsibility to serve. That's what true biblical leadership is. Yes, you are to lead, but no, it is not a leadership that serves yourself before others. It says, do not become bitter towards your wives. I, I found that really fascinating. If you've ever read anything by John Gottman, he's one of the premier researchers in marriage, probably the most significant or most well-known researcher uh, in the world, if not for sure in the United States. And he's written several books, but he's got a, a whole marriage lab that he's set up. And with hundreds of couples, he's actually had them live there and observe them and watch how they interact. And with 85% accuracy, he's been able to predict whether their marriages will last or whether they won't, based on four principles that he's learned affect how healthy a marriage is. Okay, so here's four of them, the four that he talks about. One of them is uh, criticism. When criticism exists in a marriage, it's one of the, he calls them the four horsemen, one of the things that will bring continued damage to your marriage. The second one is defensiveness. Defensiveness. When you're defensive, uh, when your partner approaches you about something, that will cause damage as well. The third one is stonewalling. Right, every one of just guys knows what that is, right? We stonewall, we shut down. Typically, guys do this. We shut down emotionally because our women, our wives are more emotionally intelligent than us sometimes. And when they talk about more than two emotions, we can't handle it. And we just like stonewall, we shut down, right? Because we only know like two emotions, hunger and sex, I think are, the, are what guys know. Women have like dozens of them. And so guys tend to stonewall. And when that continues, it'll be damaging your marriage. But you know what? Gottman says, those three you can get over. In fact, every marriage possesses those three. All of us have those uh, opportunities, and, and you'll work through them or you get around them. But the fourth one, he says, if this fourth one exists, he says, the marriage is often doomed. And the fourth one is contempt. Contempt. Do you know what another word for contempt is? Or do you know what the feeling at the bottom of contempt is? Bitterness. I don't know about you, but Paul wrote this in the first century. Now, it wasn't Paul. We know it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2,000 years later, a researcher has finally come up with evidence to show that the key to whether a marriage will last, one of the linchpins to whether it'll last or not last, is whether there's contempt existing in the marriage. Do you know what? eliminates contempt. you know the only thing that can eliminate contempt? Forgiveness. Hmm. I wonder if that's a, a gospel concept. Because in marriage, any of you that have been married for more than five days <laughs> know that the person you love the most is also the person that can hurt you the most because they're the closest to you, they know you the most, they have the most ammunition on you, and you're trusting them not to use it to blow you up. And sometimes we do, don't we? It's going to happen. A marriage will never survive unless you learn forgiveness. Do you know what the core of the gospel is? Forgiveness. Church, there is no way you can have a, a marriage that's happy or healthy or worshipful unless you've embraced this truth of the gospel and you learn to forgive. I find that fascinating that all the research is simply telling us something that we've known for thousands of years. It goes on to, to jump into our families. Um, 
Worship is reflected in my family. We see it in verse 20 and 21. It says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. This is really simple. We don't have a ton of children in here, so I won't spend a lot of time. But children, just don't miss the blessing of pleasing the Lord by failing to obey your parents while you're in the household. This refers to children who are living in the household, not those who have grown up and moved out. They are to respect or honor their parents. But when you're in the household, you're to obey your parents. You're going to have to just trust God on this one, that they actually have been where you've been. I know you think they're so outdated that they couldn't really know anything that's going on in your world. And it may be different things going on, but they're the same exact concepts that they faced. And if you will trust your parents and obey them through this season, I guarantee you, you'll be blessed by them and God will bless you and you'll be pleasing to him during this season and it'll save you a whole bunch of headaches down the road that you won't have to go back and work through. It's just how God has ordered it for our own good. Fathers, he says in here, do not exasperate your children so that they won't become discouraged. Man, and, and that word really means parents. Uh, that's translated fathers. Other places it's translated as parents. So it's really both the father and the mother in this. We often exaggerate or exasperate our children and that leads to discouragement. I just want to share really quick because I don't want to get into the details. I want to get the big picture continued. Three things that often I think discourage or exasperate our kids that I see nowadays. And I see them because I've seen them in myself as well in a lot of parenting. One of them is, is we seek the world's recognition for them while trying to raise them with Christian principles as well. I call this the double-minded parent. We want them to have all the successes of the world in academics and, and athletics and, and arts and all these kinds of things, and we push them to, to be successful in the world, and yet we're trying to raise them with Christian principles as well. And they don't always go hand in hand. And that exasperates a child. Because while they're out trying to impress the world, we're often lacking what we need to be doing with them in the spiritual realm. And now when they don't have what they spiritually need to stand up to the things they're going to face spiritually, and they falter, and we crawl all over them for faltering, when we've pushed them in that direction so much and haven't equipped them to face the spiritual things they're doing, we exasperate them. We discourage them. They feel like, I can't win. I can't win in both of these worlds. So which one is most important? You need to decide as parents what's most important to invest and give to your kids growing up. And if you're in both feet, have a foot in both worlds, guaranteed they're going to be in that same spot. And you know how frustrating that is in your own life, much less for a young person that's trying to grow up as well. The second one I see is, is what is often referred to as the helicopter parent. The helicopter parent is the one that has totally unrealistic expectations. And they're often living vicariously through their kids. And it can be out in the world, in the sports world, or it can even be in the homeschool world, where you're right there hovering over your kids and you're making sure that they're doing everything perfect. You're that helicopter that's right over the top of them and you never give them an opportunity to even possibly experience a failure. You're right there, totally unrealistic expectations, expectations that you know you would have never been able to live up to when you were a kid. But now you have those for your own kids. You will exasperate them. If you don't remember that your children were born as sinners the moment they were born, and they will struggle the rest of their life in this imperfect world, you will crush them and demoralize them. The third is what's referred to nowadays as the lawnmower parent. The lawnmower parent. This is uh, the parent that is unwilling to allow their kids to fail or face any difficulty. You're going to create the perfect environment around them wherever they go, and they call it the lawnmower because you're mowing this lawn and they get to play on this perfect little park their whole lives as long as you're around. And the problem with that is, is, you know what? Their years at home may go great for them because they're playing in the park the whole time. But the moment they leave your house, they're going to be devastated because the rest of the world won't mow the lawn for them. In fact, you and I both know the greatest things you have learned in life have not come from your successes. They've come from your failures. They've come from the things you've had to struggle and persevere through. And when we as parents 
take away every opportunity for our kids to fail, we will exasperate them. We'll discourage them. So that's a whole other message for another time. I don't want to get bogged down in that, but, but it's here, and it was a good time to touch on a few of them. So the last category we see in here is my worship is reflected in my workplace. Worship in my workplace. And this is the, the slaves and masters uh, section of it. So think of it as employee and employer because we kind of feel like slaves sometimes when we're employees, don't we? That was a joke. You guys can laugh. <laughs> Monday's tomorrow, so you'll, you'll, this will come back to mind tomorrow when you're at work. Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but work wholeheartedly fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do it from the heart. as something done for the Lord and not for people knowing that you will receive the reward of inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there is no favoritism. Masters, deal with your slaves justly and fairly, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. If you knew your boss was going to give you a significant raise if he caught you working wholeheartedly, most of us would step it up a little bit, wouldn't we? The sad thing is, is God's promising us right here, if you will work wholeheartedly for your employer, I'm going to give you a reward of an inheritance that's going to last forever. There are eternal rewards that are based on how you faithfully serve God or worship Him here and now. You can either receive them, or you can lose them for eternity. It's not your salvation. It's a reward that God has for those who faithfully serve him. And when we only work when our, our boss sees us, thinking, okay, that's going to benefit me, but if you knew you were going to be guaranteed a raise if he caught you working hard, wouldn't that motivate you to, to work hard? Sure it would. Which means you're worshiping your employer rather than God. Because God's promised you a much greater reward that's going to last infinitely longer than any amount of money or promotion you could ever receive in this life. Let that be your motivation. Trust me, when you receive it, you will never regret how hard you worked for someone who maybe doesn't appreciate you the way they should. Let me just ask you this. How would our city, just, just apply this one principle, how would our city look different if every Christian in Austin was the best stinking worker in every place that we were? You don't think people would take notice? You don't think that would cause them to ask questions about this God we worship? Man, I treat you like dirt and you work your butt off every single day. That's the gospel. We treated Jesus like dirt. And he lived with his eyes focused on his only boss. He was here to please the Father so that he could redeem people who were treating him like dirt. So when we act like that, we act like him. How about you, uh, uh, masters, or those who are employees? Uh, do you act just and fair with your employees? Uh, here, here's a couple simple things, and someone gave me another great suggestion just after this, but this is just quick. How do you value your employees? Because how you value your employees speaks greatly of how you worship your God. Don't say you worship God and then you use your employees to continue to bolster your lifestyle and increase your income while you keep them down living on meager and working for meager wages. God is giving you, maybe as a boss, the ability to make money, to organize businesses, but that's a gift that he's giving you. Deuteronomy tells us it's God who gives us the ability to make money. The question is, what are you going to do with it when you make it? Because how much stuff do you really need? How many homes do you need? How many cars do you need? How many activities do you need to do? When other people are sometimes just getting by, working their butt off to make your company better. That's not pleasing to the Lord. 
And it's not to say that everyone in the company has to make the same thing. That's not what this is saying. But this principle undermines Republicans and Democrats. See, Democrats just want to spread everything out with no accountability or no responsibility at all. Republicans want to say, hey, you deserve what you get. And whatever you can make, you hang on to it. You don't owe it to anyone else. But you know what? God comes in and says, neither of those are true. Yes, go ahead and make everything you can. Use your gifts to the best. Work wholeheartedly. But then be gracious in giving it. Not because you have to, but because you want to. Because what did God do with his stuff? He says it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so be generous with those who are working for you. Look at, are you personally like developing them in their careers? Are you developing them personally? Are you paying them a fair and just wage? Are you giving them the proper amount of time off to be with their families and rest that you would want off? That's what this is saying. Be just and fair. You know what's the most amazing about this? Is if you know anything about Jesus, and since as Christians we're to dwell richly on the message of the gospel, you would know that Jesus isn't just asking us to do these things. He's not just standing up there commanding us to do these things that seem difficult to us. He's modeled every single one of them for us. Go on this journey with me real quick. Jesus submitted to his Father to act on our behalf as the bride of Christ. Jesus took the role of the bride. When Israel blew it, Jesus became the perfect Israelite. And he submitted as the bride of Christ in a sense to the Father, obeying everything that his Father asked him to do when he was equal with the Father. The Bible says this in John 17, 4, in his high priestly prayer. It says, I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Jesus submitted, even though he was equal in value to the Father. Luke 22, 42, in the garden, when Jesus was facing the cross, he said, Father, three times, if there is any other way there's any other way that this can be taken care of. Please let this cup pass for me. Then he says these words, not my will, but yours be done. That's submission. Jesus acted as the bride. He acted as a wife submitting to a husband for you and for me. So wives, if you feel like it's unfair, if you feel like you're alone in it, he knows. He's been there. He's the perfect husband. He didn't get bitter with us as the bridegroom and now us as the church as the, the, the bride of Christ. He didn't get bitter with us when we abandoned him, when we sent him to the cross, when every one of his friends abandoned him. Jesus didn't say, that's it. I'm, I'm done with this group. I'm out of here. He faithfully marched to the cross. And he poured out his blood. He was pierced for your unfaithfulness and for my unfaithfulness. He was the perfect, loving husband for a bride that wasn't worthy of him. So husbands, when you feel like you're not being respected the way you think you should be, <laughs> I know someone that knows exactly how you feel. And he never got bitter. Instead, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Kids, if you don't think Jesus knew how to obey as a child, the Bible tells us otherwise. The Bible tells us very little about Jesus' childhood. But in Luke chapter 2, verses 51 and 52, it says... Then he went down with them, Jesus, and came to Nazareth, and he was obedient to them. His mother kept all these things in her heart. She kept it in her heart because when kids obey, moms take note. It doesn't happen very often. But Jesus didn't. Jesus, look at his blessing he got. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and with people. That's exactly what we see. He obeyed his parents, and God blessed him because of it. 
How about you employees? You think, well, Jesus didn't really know what it was like to be a servant or an employee. Well, Philippians 2 tells us very much differently. It says, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited, but instead he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant. You know what that word is there for servant? The Greek word is doulos. It's the exact same word translated slave in our passage. That's kind of a soft translation. Jesus became a slave. Once he took on human flesh, death was his only option. He was a slave for you and for me. You don't think he knows what it's like to be treated unfairly and still act in a holy manner? No one knows it better than him. Lastly, as a master, I think my favorite passage on this one is is in Luke chapter 15. You remember the story of the prodigal son? There's an unspoken character in there that we are to infer from that. But in the story of the prodigal son, the the younger son goes off and takes his inheritance and squanders it. And the older son stays there. and, And so he's left to inherit everything left that the father has. Everything left is his. But then the younger son comes back. And he comes back once he realizes what he's done. He says, I'll be a servant in your household. Just let me be a servant. And the father says, no. I welcome you back as a son. But the older brother is pissed off. He's angry because he knows if he's welcomed back as a son, then the inheritance must be divided again. He's going to lose, even though he's got an abundance, he's going to lose because his brother's coming back into the family. And Jesus is telling that story because that older brother represented the Pharisees who were not letting sinners back into the kingdom. But there's a true and greater older brother that's truly the master's son. And his name is Jesus. He's the older brother. He has all the inheritance. He's given us this inheritance of the earth and we've squandered it. And now God has made a way to welcome us back in. And Jesus is the first one in the welcome party. He's not saying, no way, that's going to cut into my inheritance. He says, no. I've got so much, I want to share it, even with those who don't deserve it. He's the kindest master you'll ever serve. Jesus' submission was in worship to his Father. His submission did not thwart God's plan for his life. His submission accomplished God's plan for his life. His submission didn't ruin his purpose in this life. His submission carried out the very purpose of his life. And his submission is what opened up the possibility for you and I to be here today. And worship a God that we are so unworthy of. So don't let the world try to tell you that submission is a four-letter word. Because nothing is more key to worship than submission. It's what gave us worship. It's what Jesus modeled and brought us in. Jesus submitted for you and for me on our behalf so that we would learn to submit on his behalf. So let me leave you with this one thought. Just one thing. There's a lot of different areas here that we talked about. But I'm guessing if you're here today that one of them struck a chord with you. It may be that marriage, it may be the family, it may be the workplace, I don't know. But I bet one of them hit you. 
And I want to challenge you to lean in to that area this week and ask yourself, I worshiped on Sunday, but am I worshiping on Monday through Saturday in this area? And what would it look like? What would it take for you to let this worship here today leak in to that area of your life? How do you need to submit this week to show someone else the submission of our Savior? Let's pray. Father, you are good. In so many ways. You've given us these truths. That you speak the truth to us. Even when you know we're going to criticize it. When we know we're going to evaluate it according to the world system. We're going to critique it. And we're going to think that we know better. Because we're sophisticated, educated Westerners. We've grown past some of these simplicities. But man there's anything I've learned in, in living and breathing and reading in this book over the 30 years I've been a believer, it's that this book reads me better than I've ever read it. So Lord, I pray that your spirit and your word would read us as a church today. And you would speak to each one of us about an area that you know we're not worshiping you. We're worshiping something in this world more than we're worshiping you because we're struggling to implement what we know is true and empower us to do that. Humble us so that we could become the worshipers that you've called us to be, not just in these four walls, but in our homes, in our workplaces. Imagine what Austin would look like if this many people were unleashed in this city, worshiping everywhere we went. It's in your name we pray.